Well, hello and welcome to this week's A Photographic Life in that limbo week between Christmas and the New Year. I thought that we should talk about something which I suppose in a way could be, perhaps is, the most important discussion any photographer, image maker, could be having at this time of the year and at this point in where we are with photographic creation. I am, of course, talking about AI, artificial intelligence. And in particular, I suppose, copyright, which seems to be one of the most important, most discussed elements of the discussion. That along with the idea of what do you actually call a thing that is created through AI? Is it a photograph or isn't it a photograph? Well, just a month or so ago, I was part of a two-day conference at the Royal Photographic Society in Bristol in the UK, where I spoke about this very subject, and um, I was optimistic in my presentation. There at the same time also talking was our guest this week, Nick Dunmore, who was born in Oxford in the UK and grew up in Sheffield. He moved to Nottingham in 1985 and completed a BA Honours in Photography at Trent Polytechnic before beginning to work commercially and establishing a studio in the city's lace market, working with clients such as Paul Smith, Triumph and Yamaha motorcycles. This led to his current commercial and advertising practice that includes video, moving image and an environment-driven photographic print works. Until June the 23rd, Dunmore was a non-executive director of the UK-based Association of Photographers, and between 2008 and 2011, he held the role of chair. He teaches on the BA Ons Photography at the University of Derby and acts as the business and legal advisor to the Association of Photographers. He is also one of the founding group of members of Pro Imaging, a trade body which protects the, re the rights, I should say, of professional photographers. Until 2013, he represented, represented them on the board of the British Photographic Council, the BPC, and he now represents the AOP on the same board. More recently, working with a fellow platinum printer, he has devised a method of making digital inkjet negatives, allowing digital images to be printed using a range of analogue alternative processes. He still lives in Nottingham, and he's got a lot to say about AI and copyright. So, Nick, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. Hey, Grant, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Now, listen, last time um, we met and we spoke, was at a two-day uh, conference around AI. Um, rather surprisingly, and, and I'm sure for listeners of the podcast, um, perhaps even more surprisingly, I was—I seem to have been the only super positive, uh, optimistic voice <laughs> of the whole um, thing. And, and Bill Shapiro and I have spoken about AI on a number of occasions on the podcast, but... One of the areas which you're an absolute expert on, I think, and I know, um, is something I don't know very much about. And I think it's perhaps the biggest issue around AI, and that's copyright. So shall we kick off there? <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's um, that's a Pandora's box, isn't it? Um, 
in terms of copyright, I think it might make it easier to break this into um, what one might call sort of the input side and the output side. So the input side, what I'm talking about is, is the point leading up to an AI tech company making um, a bit of software available for people to use. So all the stuff that goes up to that point before they release it to the general public and go, there you go, knock yourselves out. The output side is what users do with it. You know, it's kind of feeding the prompts in and getting something spat out of the uh, of the algorithm. So, and there are there is copyright um, in uh, it, there are copyright matters in both of those um, aspects in the inputs and the outputs. So perhaps we take the input side first um, because that's you know chronologically that's what happens happens in the first instance. Um, and I have. And it's widely shared online, this particular view, um, which is also borne out by the number of lawsuits that are pending at the moment. Um, probably, I think in last count, it was 150 plus um, bits of litigation going on about copyright infringement in creators and human authors' works being swept up as part of the training data sets that the usual suspects the AI platforms that we are talking about here, which um, maybe it's good to sort of just name check those as well so that we're clear about what we are actually talking about too. So um, what we're talking about is platforms like Midjourney, Stability, AI's Stable Diffusion, DALI3, um, Leonardo AI, a couple of others, um, even ChatGPT now, which has sort of um, got a link with DALI3. Um, in order that you know, even the prompting aspect of it is is automated. But so those those are the platforms that we're talking about. Um, there are smaller platforms that are being developed, but they're very much overshadowed by the tech superpowers that um, Meta, Google, Microsoft, you know, who's funding OpenAI. It's the usual suspects, really, as far as that's concerned. Um, but there are there is a lot of other activity that's happening in the AI space, but at a much more localized, small level, and it's being and that is being done differently. And we can maybe talk about that a little bit later on. But going back to the copyright aspect of things, so all of those platforms that I've just named um, are based on a, a sort of a pre-trained data set or a data set that has pre-trained the algorithm. It's it's fed in over a period of time um i mean the simplest way of, of of explaining it to anybody that has no idea about this about the technology is to say well if you take a a thousand images or a hundred thousand images of a cat for example and you feed it through the algorithm and it has the image of the cat next to the word what that does is it builds up a reference, a, a, a sort of a database, if you like, a, um, that whenever the word cat is put in, it can the the algorithm can generate something that approximates those whatever hundred thousand, two hundred thousand images have been fed into that into that algorithm. Now the the copyright infringement, it's not a case that the data sets store. The, um, the original imagery within the algorithm within the, within the platform, but the work is certainly being copied and it's certainly being used in that particular part of the, the pre-training phase before the algorithm, before the, the data, before the platform is released to the to the public, and that's a real concern because um, it gets to the point where you know my work 
Uh, I know my work is in the what's called the Leon 5B data set, which is one of the data sets that Stable Diffusion funded um, and then, surprise, surprise, then commercialized it through, uh, um, well, sorry, let me get this right. Stability AI is the company. Stable Diffusion is the platform. Stability AI funded the Leon 5B data set and then Stable Diffusion, surprise, surprise, was built on the back of that and now is offered to people as a as a monetizing commercial uh, activity you can buy a subscription to it you can sort of you know use tokens and generate outputs um i think that's you know my work is in that data set i don't have enough work online and i don't have a particular style that i'm necessarily that concerned about trying to protect you know i've i've always been a very what one might call a sort of i suppose a general practice photographer you know i work in um my my client base has been across lots of different sectors of industry they may be more or less connected with advertising but there's been some still life work there's been some landscape there's been some automotive <clears throat> excuse me all of that kind of stuff so i don't have a particular style that i'm reliant on but somebody like Annie Leibovitz or Gregory Crudson or Tim Flack. And, you know, I use Tim because he was at that conference as well. And we, we used his work as part of uh, an example of how somebody's style, um, who, you know, where, where there's a lot of imagery that's been contained in the pre-training data set and you put in a prompt that includes that photographer's or that creator's name, it might not just be photography we're talking about, of course, it might be painting or illustration or whatever, you know, other other forms of creative output. Where that person has a definitive style and th there's enough of that material in the pre-training data set, something approximating that style can be spat out of the platform. And I think that's a real issue for, for those people who have spent many, many hours and considerable amounts of money investing and developing that particular set of skills that they've got to be able to do that. You know? Yeah, but I think that you've raised so. I mean, <laughs> you've raised so many issues there <laughs> across the board, and you know, certainly Tim was was very animated and and angry when he was talking about AI. Which, you know, which obviously we understand, but there's something here which I think is worth unpicking at this point. And for me, there's two different things involved here. One is the kind of shall we call it. I hate the word style, but let's so let's use the the word the kind of visual language of a photographer. Yeah. yeah. That's kind of one thing. And then the second thing is images which we as photographers have online, which are not actually copied, but are scraped. So you'll get elements of my pictures with your pictures, with yeah. somebody else's pictures, which are scraped to bring together what we could use in the sort of, I suppose, uh, simplest language is a montage or a collage. It's John Hartfield. It's kind of the old days of Kurt Schwitters and cut and sticking and bringing together to form something new. And for me, um, I don't know how you feel about this. These are two very different things. And if somebody puts in Tim Flack or Annie Leibovitz, what they first of all have is they have a knowledge of photography that yep. they know those photographers Indeed. and that they are deliberately trying to recreate that work yeah now, if they're doing it from a hobbyist perspective i think that's one thing if they're doing it from the perspective of selling that work 
as a kind of a cheap rate Annie or a cheap rate, you know, Tim. Yeah, yeah. That's another thing. But within photography, it has always been the case that certain photographers have copied other photographers and developed their work from that. I mean, how many David Baileys did we see for years and years and years? Yeah. Portraits in black and white against white background. So how do we unpick those two things? Because I have a lot less trouble um, with the uh, copying of a photographer's style than perhaps Tim does. Yeah. Um, but then are we still in the same area of copyright or am I just causing making it more complicated? I think it depends how close an output might come to somebody's original work. So one of the examples that um, we showed at the symposium was um, an original photograph by Tim of a tiger in his style, you know, the front on head and shoulders shot, immaculately lit, incredibly detailed. Um, and then an AI output, just simply using the four words tiger by Tim Flack as a prompt and out came something front on, on a black background with that sort of, I mean, it was a lesser version. I think you will agree. It was a far, it was a far lesser version than, yeah. than Tim's original. But this is early days with with some of the technology. You know, there are constantly being uh, iterations and developments made in in the quality of the output. However, what was I think what for me what was alarming about that was that in that prompt there was nothing about specifying the fact that the the tiger had to be head on, that it was going to be a head and shoulders only image, that or that it was going to be on a black background, or even that the lighting was going to be this particular sort of um, all over very clean. Um, clear sort of uh, approach to lighting a subject. That was all based on the, using the words Tim Flack. So that element of his style, his componentry is is within that system. Now, as I've said, my, you know, if you did the same with using my name, you wouldn't get anything out that's going to approximate a, a style that I have because I'd, I've never worked in that way. You know, that's not my kind of, that's not my, uh, my field to plow as it were. Um, how I, I think where the problem is with that is that if somebody is trying to short circuit, you know, if that's if that's undermining somebody like Tim, his business, his economic model of you know having work to provide photography at a particular level with a set of um, using a particular visual language that he's put together, and that can be replicated for almost for free. Um, now. Are his, you know, what, there's, a, there's a conversation there to 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 be had to examine how much of an economic impact that has on his business. You know, does that mean that his clients are simply going to go and sit in front of a keyboard and tap away and get, you know, the kind of imagery that they might have gone to Tim to commission individually? I don't think that is the case at all for, for a minute, because I think his clients recognise that there actually is a huge amount of additional value in creating something um, unique using Tim's skills to, to do that kind of thing. And one might argue that those people that are going to use uh, a platform in that way to sort of subvert an artist's original visual language were never going to be clients of that photographer in the first place, you know, because they wouldn't, they won't have the budgets. They were never going to be knocking on Tim's door, but that's not to say that that, isn't a bad thing 
you know, from an ethical perspective, I think I think that's that's on sort of dodgy ground, really. Um, and I think the other thing that that springs to mind when you were sort of talking about um, the David Bailey sort of you know imitation being the sincerest form of flattery and all of that all of that kind of thing, I think we as human beings, when we when we see something and we try and copy it, what we do with that process is that we bring our experience, our emotion our sort of cognitive dissonance, all of the kind of stuff that makes us sort of humans comes into play. And it would be a different image that you or I would make on a Monday to a Tuesday because we'd be feeling differently about those circumstances or something else would have happened. Now, that's not built into an AI algorithm because what we're talking about with these platforms is simply pattern predicting. You know, it knows it knows that Tim Flack has a, a, a style of photographing things in a particular way, mostly on very plain, simple backgrounds, but with incredible detail. So it can kind of ratchet into that kind of stuff. But there's nothing else that's going into that um, that sort of AI output that is remotely close to how humans work when they're looking at something and then they go away and they try and recreate that. But I think this is absolutely the key, and that's why I was the voice of optimism, um, I hope, and I, I think I was, um, is because generic photography is going to be replaced by AI photography at some point. So when you say generic, are we talking, do you, you mean stock photography? Because I think- I mean stock photography, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I, I, and I think when I mean by generic, I mean that photography which- People have traditionally gone to stock agencies to yeah. get because it's been a cheap fix. Agreed. It's not particularly creative, perhaps, but it yeah. does a, it does a job. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think you're I think you're you're absolutely on the money with that. I think you know the bottom had fallen out of the stock market um, with a few very rare exceptional cases, and unless you've got sort of 50,000 images online you're not making much money from from stock and you haven't been doing for a long time no so for I at think, least 20 years yeah absolutely and i think I, I think that is where once the dust has settled a little bit more from um the initial sort of uh panic that uh, and, and sort of furore that sort of surrounded the releasing of these platforms into the into the sort of public domain once the dust has settled a bit more i think that will be where um there will be demand for that kind of AI synthetic image. Um, we will yeah. be in that kind of sector. Exactly. But I think that the real fear amongst a lot of photographers initially was all about my pictures are going to be stolen from me and used in other pictures. But the scraping process almost makes, I think, it impossible to know whether or not your images were used unless you're talking about a very, very distinctive visual language. Yeah. And there is an argument there, as I, as I will put forward, that, well, you know, it's always been the case that photographers will look at other people's work and they will be informed by it. And there has always been a cheaper version. There was always a cheaper version of uh, Paolo Reversi. There was always a cheaper version of, you know, whatever photographers you want to name. Yeah. So you could always do that, but obviously you still had to pay for it. So I wonder if where we really are on copyright and this fear of AI is not of the stealing of the image, but is stealing of the approach. 
the approach, I mean, you know, as you know, copyright is the protection for the physical expression of an idea, not for the idea itself. So there is no protection to be had from that that idea, you know, it, and and that's actually, you know, that th- that is a good thing, by the way. I mean, that you know, we don't want to be able to lock things down to the extent that, you know, there's only a handful of people able to to make stuff. That would just be bonkers. You know, we we need a wealth of of sort of human authors at work creating loads and loads of stuff and and stuff does get revamped and um, reimagined and repurposed and collaborations happen montages happen mix up mashup pastiche parody whatever you want to call it all of that stuff goes on but the the important difference for me is that that's human activity all of that stuff and what i think i would be concerned about is giving machine activity and equal footing to what human authors were involved in you know regardless of the type of output that they were making so i think putting machine outputs on a par with human output is is a bad decision um is anybody actually doing that well there's been a there was a there's a case in china recently in the last week i think which and and you know let's not forget that china has some rather bizarre approaches to lots of different areas you know so we're not taking this by any by any stretch of the imagination as a benchmark for how the 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 how um the UK or the US or the EU might actually look at this but it's 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 noteworthy in that they have decided in a test case that copyright does exist in the output of an AI platform so the the synthetic image has copyright protection in it now what isn't clear is where that copyright is vested you know is it vested in the person that stuck the prompt in or is it vested in the uh the people that designed and built the platform or is it a combination of both now that is a dangerous decision for for for, for a a court to take in my view because that is then equating the value of machine output with the value of human output and i think that's a bad move to to take with creative activity oh i'm going to play devil's advocate on that if we were to say that ai is a tool for the creative to use which if we go back to that conference that we we attended yeah. i should say it was at the royal photographic society if i didn't say at the beginning uh, in bristol in the uk um, if we go back to that, there are a number of, we'll call them contemporary art practitioners who are using AI as a tool. And, and I spoke to Jonas um, Bendixson on yeah. the podcast about a year or so ago now, and we spoke about his book of veils and how he used it yeah. um, as a tool. So therefore, it's absolutely right that Jonas should have copyright of the images he created with that tool because without Jonas or whoever um the the it's a bit like social media it's it doesn't exist without people it's just ones and zeros so surely we're in the same situation with AI by people who use it as a tool that they are creating something new I think you can I think there's a difference to in my mind there's a difference between using it as an assistive tool or using it to to supplant the human as the the at the point of origin now I I I'm not sure of the the exact some sort of mechanics of how Jonas made that piece of work um but 
as far as, as you know, my my perspective on it would be that if you're starting out from a point of of sort of human origin where you're you've made a piece of work, you've you've started the idea with um, some sort of some sort of photograph, some sort of image that you have made as an individual, and you then use an AI platform or some AI assistive tool. And, and let's face it, you know, people have been photoshopping things for years and there's been, you know, very sophisticated um, uh, technology at work behind things like clone and heal and fill and all of that kind of stuff, which has been going on for donkey's years. So generative fill is really only a kind of a, a natural progression from that, being able to expand a canvas in one direction or another, for example, or to add something else in. But I think I think I'm on safe ground, he says. I think I'm on safe ground saying that if something has been human authored and is then worked on using AI assisted tools, that's a very different paradigm to take to actually generating something that is predicated at the moment. And this comes back to what we said at the beginning about the pre-training and the data sets that the current set of AI tools platforms are based on. I, I have a, an, a problem with that from an ethical point of view in that the output is still based on something that is has been used or trained on other people's work without permission or recompense. And I think that's a different, uh, a, that's another dynamic that's at play within all of this. And I don't think there's, it's, you can't sort of take one without the other. You know, these things are all in the mix together. Um, and it does become... It becomes quite nuanced, I think, because then there are shades of grey as to, well, how much work does a human need to do to something in order for that to become uh, an original piece of work, you know, copyrightable, if you were to take an AI output, a synthetic um, sort of uh, image from a platform, and then you were to spend the next six months working on that and doing other things to it. At what point does that transform into being a human authored piece of work? You know, because you've spent more time or energy. You know, that's all grey area stuff, and and I, it's not ever going to be the case that we can simply say, "Here are the rules. This is this is the dividing line between it's this or it's this." You know, and and that's the same with copyright law. To be honest, I mean, as you know, Grant, that's kind of you know when you get to the edges of all of this stuff, you know, and that's what makes copyright lawyers sort of um you know rich. yeah well yeah exactly it makes them rich but it's also their kind of um you, you know forgive the crude term but it's their kind of wet dream i mean it's it's you know playing at those in those gray areas is exactly what they love to do because you know they can spend hours and hours and hours sort of you know arguing about sort of angels on the head of a pin that kind of thing um and but it what's just, what you're talking there, something came to my mind. Um, and I <laughs> I didn't expect, as you know, uh, and as we said at the beginning, I, I never plan where these conversations are going to go at all. I have no uh, set agenda here. Um, but I was instantly thinking of the artist Peter Blake, yeah, um, who is a collagist as well as an artist and a painter, but a collagist. And then I started to think while she was speaking, okay, well, what about the album cover for the Beatles, Sgt. Pepper? That's a very well-known, we, everybody listening, I'm sure, would be aware of that. Yeah, yeah. And it was created with found imagery as an actual sculpture. It actually was life-size. And then they were put in front of it or put within the sculpture, made out of found things. And then a photograph, Michael Cooper took the photograph of the thing. So we've got the copyright of the photograph. Yep. 
We've got the copyright of the Beatles, shall we say, and then we've got the copyright of Peter Blake, but then every single person he's put in there uh, is a photograph which was taken by another photographer who isn't credited and isn't paid for, and then it's all put out by EMI. Yeah. Do they own the copyright of? Do you see where I'm going with this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, 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 nothing it, it, new. Yeah, it gets multi-layered very quickly, and it gets very complex very quickly as well. And yeah, I mean, you can have pieces. Yeah, there are lots of examples of pieces of work where there are multiple copyrights at play within that sort of final thing that people sort of see hanging on a wall in a gallery or or in the pages of a book or something. And there may be multiple copyrights at play within that one piece of work. But what's interesting is that Peter Blake is credited with the, the album cover design. And yet Michael Cooper, who took the photograph, is probably much less known. Um, but what I'm thinking about with all of this is that First of all, we shouldn't be scared that photography is going to die and it's all over because I yeah, don't I think, think I, it. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with you absolutely on that. Um, but also just going back to your point about Michael Cooper, I mean, the other thing to bear in mind with all of this stuff as well is that quite often, you know, we know contract law overrides copyright law. So it's very easy to write people out of existence mm. in the way that somebody will never appear being connected to a particular piece of artistic process because they've had to sign a document that's basically assigned or taken the rights off them and they've been you know transferred to EMI or to to somebody else within that sort of other corporate structure so it gets even it you know that there's not only the issue of of where the copyright was originally but then there's also the issue of what contractual arrangements were at play in the making of that particular piece of work as well yeah so as photographers I think um, that perhaps we don't need to be quite so worried about our work being scraped and used. But we do, if we have a very strong visual language, perhaps need to worry about that. However, this is another perhaps con controversial point to make. Could it be that those photographers like Annie's work now is completely different to Annie's work of the 70s to the work of the 80s, it has evolved. Um, Tim's work, uh, I'm sure it is different now than it was when he first, it's, it's yeah. not, it's the, you know, it's a bigger production now yeah. than it was when he first started. Yeah. So is it not the nature of the photographer or the responsibility of the photographer to evolve that language and to keep ahead of the copyist? I think that's well. That's an interesting point. I mean, to know that your work is going to be copied. I mean, that's a you know, regardless of whether it's scraped into a um, a pre-training data set or whether somebody else simply lifts a copy and you know, a, a, a relatively innocuous use would be to sort of have it as your own personal laptop screensaver or something like that. You know, I mean, that's still copyright infringement. It's mm. just never going to be prosecuted because it's not. You know that the. the, the you can't sort of track that. You can't. You and, and also the monetary value of that infringement would be really little. You know, one person using it as a. But um, the the sort of, I think the the idea that a photographer has a responsibility to evolve, is interesting because that that sort of means that I mean you, if one is if one is talking about um, working as a 
as a professional, I mean, then therefore all, you know, all practice is, is commercial practice, isn't it? Which I think you'd agree on, regardless of whether you're sort of licensing work for advertising use or whether you're making limited edition prints and exhibiting, you know, that's all, that's all commercial activity is my yeah, view. Yeah, as soon as a commercial transaction takes place, as far as yeah. I'm concerned, that's commercial. Yeah, absolutely. But I think that the idea that there should be a responsibility on the photographer to evolve a style, if there is an audience and there continues to be an audience for a particular visual language, a particular style of visual language, that, I mean, and there are plenty of photographers out there that we could um, we could name whose work has stayed very much in stasis and they continue to produce more versions of the same thing. And yet an audience, you know, you, you might grow out of that photographer. You might evolve, you might evolve yourself as an, as, as the viewer, as the audience, you might decide, you know what, I don't like so-and-so's work so much anymore because, well, maybe it hasn't changed, or maybe I'm now interested in, in looking at things from a slightly different perspective. So I've become more interested in these people over here rather than, you know, that, that, that person there who's still making the same stuff, but equally as I move out of their sphere, somebody else will move in and they'll become connected to that because that's all in flux all the time. I'm sure, you know, the way that we respond to uh, visual language, the, the the way that we think about things, you know, every day something happens to us, our experiences change the way they shape who, who we are and, and, and how we in, interact with our environment. Well, yeah, I mean, regular listeners will know that I very often use the metaphor of music with photography. And I suppose um, also they'll know that I'm a huge fan of Bob Dylan. Now, he, he's got no interest in his audience and is constantly changing, rewriting, and, and yeah. takes great delight in making songs sound nothing like they used to. Yeah. Then you might have somebody like, I don't know, McCartney or Elton John, for example, who will go out and try and get as close to the original as they possibly can when they play the songs live. It's no comment on either. But what's interesting to me is that the, the band that keeps on doing the same thing is far more likely to have bands out there copying what they do and having looky-likey bands um, than, than Dylan, who all anybody can do is try and pick one period and try and sound like that. Yeah. And I just wonder if, you know, we're really talking about, you know, photography and the creative art and, uh, you know, people want to do that, then that natural evolution actually solves the problem. Well, the other thing to think about as well is that, you know, going back to what you said before about being less concerned about the um, the sort of the pre-training, the scraping, if you like, of of work off, off the internet, I think... I mean, the thing to to, to recognise is that's already happened. That was a a, a, a sort of a process, um, the training process. So I read something somewhere that it you know it, it it took up to six months for one of the platforms to kind of complete that amount of computing because they're processing you know five point eight five billion image text pairs. That's a lot of data to sort of to to feed and sift through. So you need huge amounts of computing resource and power to be able to, to crunch all those crunch all those um, uh, ones and zeros and get to a point where you've then got an algorithm, a platform that can respond to some sort of input, whether it's you know, you putting another image in there, or whether you putting a, a text or a phrase or a string of text, a string of words in order to get something out of it. So the scraping nature of stuff has already taken place. And, and if we, 
it's not like that I'm putting some new work on online tomorrow and that will be inevitably swept up within that new data set. I, from what I understand of how the platforms work, and I'm, you know, I'm not a technologist, so there will be gaps in my knowledge for sure about, about that. But, you know, that aspect of, of the, of the technology is not happening constantly. Um, I did read somewhere that some, you know, um, some platforms might retrain every kind of two months, perhaps based on um, stuff that has been generated within the platform. Now, that's a really interesting um, take because if they are pre, if they are continuing to train the algorithm based on synthetic outputs, while well, you gradually diluting the. Uh, the, the the source of the human authored work anyway, because you're kind of putting syn- synthetic imagery back into that mix in order to train it. And that can, I think what ultimately would happen with that approach, and again, you know, th- th- this is why I'm slightly less concerned about it, because I think those big platforms there will ultimately end up consuming themselves because there is nothing to stop that process happening. Um, and it, it th- the, the, existing sort of set of of bias and inaccuracy that 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 is all over the internet as you as as you, as we well know um will simply be amplified through the output of synthetic work and then if it's retrained on that synthetic work again it continues to amplify and and that becomes sort of more and more misinformed um i mean you know you you only have to think about if somebody has miscaptioned a, 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 one of their own photographs, you know, and it's an image of a paintbrush, but they've called it something else, for example, and that gets fed into the training data set, there's, the, there's your first glitch. You know, you imagine how many millions and millions and millions of inaccurately keyworded, inaccurately captioned photographs there are in the training data set. And it's in exactly the same way that some, something like ChatGPT, the reason why it spits out garbage is because there is garbage in the training data, a hell of a lot of it. But, you know, it's it's very interesting, Zach, because it takes me back to stock photography that we were talking about at the beginning. Because if I go back 24 years, back to year 2000, actually, 99, 2000, I was involved, um, and I'm not going to talk too much about it, but I was involved with the building of a major um, photo agency that you're aware of who went around the world buying up small agencies and big agencies. And I was part of that process of trying to set an agenda for where stock went. Now, that company that bought those those agencies didn't do very good due diligence on the library. And what they did was they paid a lot of money for a lot of rubbish photography that was really old, really dated, they spent seven days a week, 24 hours a day scanning them on very expensive drum scanners. You know, the whole thing was creating a database of work that they were never going to be able to sell or get money from. And it took a long time and a lot of investment for them to get new material in. And that particular company is still trying to sell that old stuff. Yeah. So, so that, so that brings up the point of curation, Um, you know, being, being able to curate, something and this is this is that's a very neat segue um into the idea of where this technology might go because i think actually you know where once the dust has settled from from this sort of current set of um image 
generators. I think what will happen is something that is more bespoke, that is occupying, that will occupy a niche and that will be trained on curated, legitimately licensed data. So you will have- you know, a- But the only thing with Annex, sorry to interrupt you, but it's so interesting you say that because that was exactly what my job was in stock was to say the future will be curated, specific, high impact, high quality material. And of course, the reality was it went in the opposite direction. It went cheap, cheap, cheap to just try and get rid of it. And my understanding is at the moment that most of the databases out there for AI are full of really old stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, if it's a scrape of the internet, it's got all sorts of shit and twigs in it, hasn't it? Mm. It's got it's it's got everything everything in there going back going back since it's been online probably I mean you know anything that's not behind a paywall or some sort of subscription platform will have been included in the Layon Five B data set and and is included in Google's Common Crawl which is what underpins Dali Three um, but I do I I do think that there is this is slightly different because unlike stock photography which was only ever really of interest to photographers themselves and to their clients, AI is a much bigger um, topic that's affecting and impacting huge numbers of people in loads and loads of different industry sectors and the general public as well. Yeah, and exactly. I think, and, I, and I think that awareness of, of AI and how it might sort of fit into our lives and it has, has kick-started a process. And you start to see this now because suddenly – there are discussions being had in the United States about the existence of, you know, these large monopolies, you know, the tech giants. And actually, maybe that's not quite such a good thing. You know, how have we allowed that to happen? Um, and, the, you know, the fact that the the reins of power for the technologists are kind of held between sort of five or six companies, you know, 98% of the resources is held by those five or six companies. You know, clearly, that's not good for innovation clearly that's not good for people that have an idea and want to take something off in a different direction themselves so going back to this idea of, of curation yeah i get your point about the fact that it was cheap as chips and sort of you know people actually in in terms of using imagery to sell stuff you know the cheaper the better great we can just you know it's consumable it becomes a consumable disposable thing but i think the way that ai is is because it's now impacting and connected with a much with a global sort of population, a global audience, not just photographers and not just their clients. I think that has put it on a different footing. Um, and I think there will be other ways of, of I think there will there will be a, a desire to see it used in a different way, um, which will have more impetus in terms of legislative frameworks and, you know, people wanting to make sure things have got proper sort of, they, they use the term guardrails, which I think is a, a is a, a tech sector term, but that idea of having sort of parameters within which the thing, the algorithms, the networks, the, the neural networks have to exist and they can't sort of stray out of that. I mean, it, the other, the other thing is, is that these, the, the current set of AI tools are just machine learning tools they're pattern predictors they're nothing more than that they're not sentient they're no there's no logical reasoning or anything of that nature going on behind them and i think it's important to sort of dispel any notion that that is any anything other than the case yeah and i completely agree with you and and i think you know it it seems incredibly um kind of naive really to talk about ai 
you know, and its impact on photography, which I actually think is going to be very small, whereas its impact on our lives is going to be huge. It's it's, it's a completely different thing. But it also reminds reminds me when you were talking there of uh, the industrial revolution, where we're talking about that idea of a huge change, economic and socially. But what came out of that were these huge companies that were controlling everything, the big car companies, the big food companies, the big, and so on and so forth. And so there, you know, this really is, I, I suppose, a continuation of that digital revolution where it's just continuing and, and moving on. But the most important thing, obviously, I suppose, for for the, uh, the narrow-focused photographer <laughs> desperate not to lose their income, is that we feel, I think, I certainly feel, that the photographer themselves, as long as they're not falling into the trap of creating ge- this generic photography, then it can't replace them because it isn't a creator, it's a predictor. So yes. it's exactly the same as a text prediction on your phone. It's exactly. guessing what you want. Yeah. It's it's not actually doing what you want necessarily. Yeah. Precisely, precisely. And 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 I think you're right, Grant. I think that is that is the strength of of being a a human author is having that ability to sort of to develop and learn new visual a new visual language or extend your own visual language into areas and challenge yourself to kind of to to be um not just to sort of sit on and in, in the same old spot i guess is is but that's but that's always been part of what makes people want to be creative people in the first place you know if you're driven to be creative then you have that that itch that you need to scratch all the time and if you try and you know walk away from it and leave it it never quite disappears you know you always have to go back to it and um i think i think that will be part of the saving of uh photography will be that sort of uh, the, the element of creating and developing one's own visual language. I think the other thing is a, a much more fundamental in that people like working with people. Um, and really, actually, when when push comes to shove, I mean, we all spend so much time online anyway. Post-pandemic, that's the new reality. We're kind of divvying up our time between face-to-face and, and existing online. Great. That's that's made things quite a lot more efficient in, in some ways. But we're still, even if we're online, we're still, you know, face to face online, but talking to another human being. Um, well, at least, you know, as far as you and I are concerned, I, I'm assuming I'm talking to another human being. So I can see. <laughs> oh, you. I'm an AI version of me. What a horrific yeah. concept! Oh my god! Yes, absolutely. I have hands and everything. Well, that's very meta, isn't it? Yeah, that would be. Yeah, uh, that, that sort of um, properly populate itself, but that kind of, um, I think that fundamental of people like working with people and people like buying from people. And, you know, that's an age old thing. And and really, I mean, humans, humans never evolve fast enough to keep up with the technology that they, that they develop, which is a huge irony, really, because, you know, you think about the computing power of a smartphone is far greater than the amount of computing power that was used to send the first man into space. You know, and here we are. And what do we use it for? Well, we might play a few games on it. We sort of, you know, send a few WhatsApp messages, scroll through Instagram, do a few other bits and bobs. You know, we're we're using a fraction of its sort of computing power, really, um, because that's just that's just how we are as 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 human beings. You know, we're not that evolved to be able to kind of take full advantage of the technology. So, I think that does that as well. Um, I think one of the things that I did want to also talk about was the notion of clients are 
unsure about using synthetic imagery as part of their own activities because of, and this goes back to the first one of the first points you made about copyright, um, and it's maybe a good point to inter- introduce this because at the moment it's very far from clear whether there is any copyright protection in the output from an AI text to image generator. There is uh, much activity that the US has actually taken has 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 made a much clearer stat has taken a much clearer stance on this in terms of saying no you can't you can't register stuff that was spat out of an AI platform with the United States Copyright Office. We're not going to allow that. Um and that was I think it was Zariah and the Dawn was the sort of the graphic comic uh, uh, not a graphic it was a graphic art novel comic novel um that uh, the author tried to register. I think she'd written text, so that was copyrightable, but she generated all of the imagery through a text image generator, and that was ruled as inadmissible as far as copyright protection was concerned. So the United States has already kind of you know taken set a a, a, a sort of a, a, a line in the sand, if you like, drawn a line in the sand as far as that's concerned. And I think really, and and this is a, a debatable question as well, because going back to what you said about artists and practitioners um, and and people using AI platforms as a mechanism for exploring themes or developing ideas or uh, trying to communicate something to an audience, whatever that thing might be. If if, If AI generated work, synthetic work is not copyright protected, there is absolutely nothing to stop somebody from coming along and going, that's a an interesting image of a an owl in a waistcoat on a unicycle. I will use that. Thank you very much. And and you know what are you going to do about it? Because there's no copyright. You've got no legal recourse to do me for copyright infringement. It's a it's free for all. And for that reason, I think clients will not want to go near it. You know. So as long as there is no copyright protection in the outputs of of those platforms, then clients are going to be thinking, well, how do we? You know, we value our brand. You know, if I'm Adidas or Nike, I value that above, you know, that that needs protecting. So I'm not going to risk devaluing it by attaching it to a bunch of assets that are not protectable. And therefore, somebody else could just be lifting and using for something else without without fear. That's so interesting because, you know, the photographer is petrified about their copyright. But you're actually saying, well, hang on a minute here. The the client also wants to be able to copyright. Absolutely. Yeah, they yeah, I mean, and and you know, big, uh, big, big brands like Diageo or Unilever. I mean, they are, you know, that's they're they're a real double edged sword in some way because you know lots of people will want to work for those companies because of the amount of commissioning that they do. However, the commissioning contracts that they all give you will often sort of take copyright off the photographer, you know, and that's a deal that you have to sort of uh, a decision you have to make yourself. Are you happy with that? Are you being paid enough? I'm not going to sit here and sort of condemn anybody for going down that path. You know, um, that that's up to each individual. However, what that still means is that the intellectual property that's vested in that part of, of, of the creative process is still controllable. You know, it's not it's now no longer being controlled by the photographer. It's being controlled by the commissioning client. And therefore, they've got that asset that's protected. They can leverage the law against anybody that seeks to sort of, you know, use it for something else or rip them off or do whatever. And that's protecting their brand. So 
at a particular level, and I, I know for well, you know, that not everybody is Unilever and not everybody is Diageo. So there will be hot, huge chunks of sort of activity that exist at a much lower sort of commercial value level where people, businesses might just go, do you know what? I don't, you know, I, I don't give a shit if somebody lifts that and uses it for something else. But that was ever thus really. And, and you know, I think with, and, and, and that kind of closes, that brings us back into the stock area where businesses who don't value original human authored imagery enough might have you know they might have previously bought stock as royalty free for 20 cents and just gone that'll do that's fine you know we know 40 other businesses are using the same image who cares um and they'll and they'll probably get something from an uh, an ai platform they might get a synthetic image but they're never going to be the, the the businesses that were generating income for photographers anyway so in some ways there there is that little bit of insulation i think perhaps I think the future is a lot more positive than perhaps some photographers fear. And there isn't really the need to be quite so anti-AI in photography, but just to be p- perhaps more informed. I think being more informed is absolutely the way to, to to sort of to approach this. It's not, you know, I can't remember. I can't. I've lost count of the number of times I've heard the phrase, you can't put the genie back in the bottle because that's what people say about this technology. Um, and that is a truism. You know, it's become a cliche already over a very short space of time, but it, it's certainly true. So being informed is absolutely the way to go with this um, and keeping abreast of all of the developments of it. Um, and I think that, you know, because of the the amount the power of the spotlight that is on the technology and going back to a, a point you said about not just within photography, but within all aspects of our lives, you know, healthcare, um, you know, the way that we uh, interact with utilities, you know, transport, um, the social sort of networks and and all of that kind of stuff that, that the fabric of our society, essentially, you know, there is, likely to be ai sort of bubbling away or creeping or seeping into those kind of things and i and so many 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 more eyeballs are on that technology and making well questioning how this is going to actually play out you know so it's not it's not like we as photographers have a lone battle to fight we might be fighting that in our sector particularly and and sort of saying oh hang on a minute you know we need to make sure that if you're going to use a data set you license the work that's going in the data set you know we want to make sure that there's no sort of um protection for the for, for the outputs therefore the human author is always valued higher than the than the machine um and but there will be all of those battles will be going on with other sectors at the same time so i i i share some of your optimism uh, as far as that's concerned i don't think i'm as optimistic as you are but i think that i do see that you know the questions that are now being asked are very different to the questions that were being asked maybe 5 or 6 months ago and the and you know what you said before about photographers panicking and sort of thinking this is it game over i'm going to hang up my cameras actually what's what's now happening is is you know that there's there is much more knowledge about the processes and about the 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 platforms and the tech companies and the, that 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 sort of space and i guess that was always inevitable you know that was always going to happen where people sort of just gen themselves up a bit more and you know the truth will out won't it in terms of how these things are structured it will and not knowledge is power yeah. and um when you've been around as long as i have and you have we will both know that um 
things change and things evolve, but you may as well stay optimistic. Yeah, well, there's that saying as well, isn't there, Grant? The more you know, the less you actually know. Well, that's perfect explanation for this podcast. Uh, obviously not this particular episode, but <laughs> in other weeks. Listen, thank you so much, Nick, um, for sparing the time for this. And we really could have just kept on talking uh, forever. So what I'm going to suggest is maybe um, end of 2024, we um, we meet again and, and see where idea. we are then. Yeah, let's do I mean, a year is a long time uh, in politics, let alone AI. Let's not mention politics. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Nick. Take care. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you, Grant. That's really good. A big thank you to Nick for sparing the time to share his thoughts. I hope you found them interesting, informative, and I'm sure a lot of what we said will spark debate. And a lot of you may agree or disagree with us. That's the whole point of discussion. Anyway, in this meta world, you know what you've got to do. Take care.